Good evening and welcome to Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. My name is Nate and I'm joined by my co-host JM and Anne. In the last episode, we discussed the works of Mary Shelley, who is almost universally considered to be a major pivoting point in the genre of science fiction. And in a few episodes' time, we'll be discussing some of the works of Jules Verne, who is another major pivoting point in the history of science fiction. But in between the publication of Frankenstein and Jules Verne's, there's about a period of 50 years. So in this episode and the next episode, we're going to be discussing a bit of what comes in between. Uh, so the two works we're going to be looking at tonight are two novels. Uh, the first being The Mummy, A Tale of the 22nd Century. And the you second gotta make sure you get that exclamation point. The on. Mummy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most exciting punctuation mark for it a is. most exciting tale. Uh, and Star Sci of Cassiopeia. Uh, so the first work we're going to be discussing is The Mummy. Uh, it was written by Jane Webb, uh, initially published anonymously. The second edition actually bore her name. Uh, Jane Webb was born into a wealthy family. However, her mother died in 1819 uh, when Jane was quite young. Uh, around this time, she extensively traveled Europe and learned several languages and was very well read in the classics. And in the very beginning part of The Mummy, she references Aristophanes, Plautus, Terence, as well as Shakespeare and Moliere. Uh, Jane was 18 or 19 during the first publication. I'm not exactly sure what the actual publication date was. Um, her father died penniless when she was 17 in 1824, and she took up writing as a means to support herself. Uh, she publishes a book of poetry, The Mummy, and a second novel, The Stories of a Bride. She met her husband, who was John Luden. He had reviewed The Mummy previously and loved the work. At the time, Jane was 23 and John was 47. Uh, even in the 19th century, that's a bit of an age difference. Uh, however, the two seemed really fond of one another. Um, Jane continued to write for the rest of her life, primarily in horticultural and gardening works. And her gardening books contain really gorgeous illustrations that she drew uh, herself. There is a popular biography of her published in the 1960s called The Lady with Green Fingers, which I wasn't able to track down. It's not on the internet. And if we weren't in a pandemic, I would probably be able to get it from interlibrary loan. But uh, you know, we're working with these troubling times here. Um, but the, the Ludens were friends with Charles Dickens and Thackeray in their personal lives, so they were quite connected with the literary circle of the day. Uh, so with that brief biography of Jane Webb, let's start to unbandage this corpse. Yes, and a portentous corpse he is, our Cheops. <laughs> so uh, this book is, um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things about it that are funny and that are kind of, uh, I guess, improbable maybe you could say but i really enjoyed it i had a good time with it and uh i don't know what you guys you guys thought we were talking about it a little bit uh earlier but it's it's a very <laughs> it's a very gothic tale it's funny she does have a sense of humor uh, and compared to the other books that we've done so far uh this one has a lot more dialogue so it's certainly very different in that sense uh of just reading it it, it you could really hear the voices in your head, and I, I like to picture, you know, certain actors <laughs> maybe doing some of the parts. It's uh, it's definitely inspired by Egyptology that was very uh, significant at the time in England. They actually had public unbandagings of mummies in uh, that were yeah, but people just uh, basically the the history of Egypt was just sort of raided for European enjoyment. And yeah, thanks to Napoleon. 
Yeah, thanks to Napoleon, but the British seemed more than happy to oh, absolutely. participate as well. And uh, there is uh, uh, probably both Mary Shelley and Jane Webb may have witnessed uh, some of these spectacles, I yeah. would imagine. Um, I forget the date it was, but I was reading that there was an importation of, of one of the mummies to either the yes. British Museum or something like that or around the time that this was written. And it, it was a big public uh, attraction that brought in a lot of curious eyes. This novel came out roughly 10 years after the initial publication of Frankenstein, um, and certainly after the play Presumption. So Webb would have definitely been familiar with the Frankenstein story. And I think you can see a lot of that influence in the scenes involving the mummy itself, particularly the, the resurrection of the mummy. Right. Well, didn't so, didn't she actually like disagree with the politics that were in Frankenstein? Because I had read somewhere that she was like clearly like horrified by science being bigger than God. I guess, and this is like her. This was like her uh, way to like kind of talk about that. It was like a what do you call it? It was just like a rebuttal. A rebuttal. Yeah, it was a rebuttal to the Frankenstein that she was like, oh, gosh, and that's why in the end of the book they kind of go. Well, it could have been science, or it could have just been a coincidence, and maybe they just got resurrected by spiritual forces, you know? So Yeah, they're both very different kind of creatures, too. Uh, Frankenstein's monster is this tortured soul outcast from humanity who just wants revenge against his creator and everybody who's harmed him, where Cheops the mummy, I don't know what his motivation is half the time. He's just hanging out, you know, giving people advice, you know? It's, it's like, what? Um, <laughs> so, so there's two two <laughs> literary characters that Cheops the mummy, who is revived by electricity, very blatantly stated. Right. That uh, it's yeah. Electricity. Th yeah. Uh, and, and that's one of the best scenes in the book because it uh, is. It's amazing. Uh, Ed Edric is talking to the doctor character. Uh, Edric being one of the main characters in the novel, um, mm -hmm. and he's just talking about so nonchalantly. Uh, you know, I was thinking about resurrecting a corpse today, yeah. and the doctor's <laughs> like, "Yeah, I think we got a battery in the garage that ought to do the trick." And then they go on and resurrect the mummy. And it's like, yeah. all right. So so uh, there's two literary characters that this uh, Cheops reminds me of. Uh, well, maybe before I go into that, I'll just try and briefly summarize this rather long book. So there's these two families. Uh, one is the family of the Duke of Cornwall, and the other is the family of the Sir Ambrose. And... Uh, we start off with a chapter describing how the politics and society is in the 22nd century. And so this is basically a gothic melodrama that, just for kicks, Jane Webb decides that she wants to set in the future. And believe me, she sure has a lot of fun with it. Um, so these two families have their, their, the queen is, um, the whole royal structure has changed kind of dramatically. There's been a whole bunch of uh, revolutions in England and stuff. And the queen is now elected, sort of. Uh, she's elected by representatives of the various counties. And, of course, all those representatives are men. It's pretty explicitly stated. So what looks at first like a statement for feminism is not really. But Jane is smart enough to be rather cynical about this because she kind of shows that really what people are interested in is having a ruler that they can control, or certain people. And so uh, she, uh, the queen has this uh, champion, the current queen has this champion named Edmund. He's kind of, uh, he's been responsible for uh, 
crushing a lot of her enemies and, and crushing the enemies in Germany. And he is, uh, uh-oh, I have to keep all the family shit straight. Uh, that's actually kind of difficult sometimes. So, uh, uh, yeah, especially because they the pull like a secret of... identity twist at the end. Yeah, so... and that really throws everything into chaos. <laughs> This is this is a complete gothic melodrama, basically, and it's got international intrigue and uh, sort of sibling, but not really sibling rivalry. Uh, it's got and it's got uh, crazy Doctor Stranger, Doctor Strangelove like scientist named Doctor Antwerpen, who's basically been tutoring the son of the Duke of Am, uh, uh, sorry, the son of Sir Ambrose. And the son of Sir Ambrose, her father, his father has this idea that he's going to marry into the royal family. But he's like, no, nah, I just want to resurrect dead flesh. And so he goes off to Egypt uh, in, a, in a really funnily described balloon trip. And it's, this is actually one of the most hilarious parts of the books because um, they're coming down over, over Egypt. And she's describing how it's become basically this huge industrial society. But it's very colonial, so don't get your hopes up for any uh, Egyptian representation because there really, really isn't any. So as they're coming down, uh, and, and she describes to uh, how ridiculous Dr. Entwerfen looks, and she's always doing this, and they're coming down over, over Egypt, and they're, in the, uh, they're coming down over this city, and everybody's staring at them. And Dr. Entwerfen's like, Oh, look at these backwards people, and they've never seen anything like this before. Our advanced, uh, my my super awesome balloon, and and he doesn't realize that they're just pointing and, and laughing at him because he just looks so stupid. <laughs> and uh, so they go down over Egypt, and they just kind of walk right into the tomb of Cheops, into the pyramid, and uh, basically apply a battery to him. And, oh yeah, the whole reason why he wants to do it on a mummy is that uh, he thinks it would be more clean and less uh, disgusting than going to a, like, a graveyard. Yeah, the philosophical <laughs> dialogue they have at the beginning about the, the mummy is another really funny scene. Because they, they all act so nonchalant, matter-of-fact, where Frankenstein yeah. is like this really conflicted character, and there's just no conflict uh, internally with these people at all. Well, yeah, so once they actually do it, and there's this, like, uh, uh, basically a giant storm and explosions, and, and it's, like, a really crazy scene where, where everything is, you kind of picture, like, I don't know, I, 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 I read this book, and because it's so different than everything else we've done so far, uh, it was really easy to picture everything and make it, like, sort of, you could kind of almost do a direct to the screen of your mind, the translation of this book. So it reminded me of, you know, the the universal movies and beyond interpretation of the the Frankenstein monster revivification scene with all the you know uh, electricity sparking everywhere and and uh, the two guys running back and forth flicking switches and, and all this chaos uh, but this is all done it's done a bit scarier in the sense that they don't actually really know what's happening <laughs> they literally do not seem to know they're just like let's try this and see what happens and uh and everything goes crazy and to make a long story short the mummy revives but they kind of miss it because uh so one thing you can make fun of this book for is talking about how uh people faint when bad shit happens and it's not just the women it's the men too 
So she's actually very equal about it. The banner always like, oh, oh, and passing out, you know. <laughs> they probably do it more than the women do. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, and so, so they kind of miss it. And uh, the next thing they know, they're in prison. And they're being charged with violating the tomb. And the mummy is gone. And so is Antwerfen's balloon. There's a lot of stuff that goes on with them being in prison and with the mummy showing up in England. So there's two instances, two things that this reminds me of. There's two literary characters that Cheops actually reminds me of. One is Dracula. Both of these would come later, by the way. So one is Dracula with the whole, you know, the story of, of uh, Redfield going to The foreigner infiltrating get... England. Right, right. The other is, this is kind of funnier to me, uh, the other is the, the comic slash radio character, The Shadow. Uh, probably most people know about The Shadow. He's kind of this invisible uh, psychic cop. But he's not really a cop. He's actually just an interested bystander. But he helps out the police. And, and he does this by basically tormenting criminals into confessing their evil deeds. And they cannot see him. So he basically just walks around and, and you know, it's because it's uh, the, the most famous iteration of The Shadow is a radio series. So the, the characters on the show are always talking to themselves and they're like, hey, no one will ever discover this thing that I've done and I'll be able to get away and move to another country. And then all of a sudden they hear this evil voice going, <laughs> you would think you're going to escape your fate. And, uh, of course, the original Radio Shadow was played by Orson Welles. So, yeah. Basically, the mummy, Cheops, is this being that teleports around. At first, I thought he was just kind of lurking in the shadows. But, actually, she makes it clear, pretty clear at one point, he's actually teleporting wherever the hell he wants. So, he just shows up. And he has a habit of showing up when people are thinking about him, too. Uh, like, oh no, that mummy, you know, he told me to do this and everything went wrong and, and he's such a terrible fiend. And then you hear the evil laughter and if it was a movie, there would be a big musical sting going, BOOM! The mummy is here. And so there's a big political intrigue situation where uh, these really hilariously depicted uh, lords of the kingdom want to elect this one... Uh, of the two candidates for the queen. Lord and Doodle and Noodle. Lord Doodle and Noodle, yeah. And Lord Gustavus, who's always saying shit like, uh, as I believe, and as I know, everyone who has a sensible mind must believe. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's like catchphrase. Uh, they're, they're really funny, ridiculous caricatures, basically. Um, they want to uh, elect this certain, this certain queen, so they put a lot of effort into doing that. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth. There's a whole bunch of secondary characters. Uh, there's a lot of intrigue, and it would probably take forever to actually try to explain what really happens. But in essence, this mummy is playing political games with all the people of Britain and beyond. There's a whole detour in Spain uh, where the... Uh, Doctor and this Edric, who's, uh, we haven't even mentioned his name yet, but he's the, the guy who revived the mummy, uh, where the two of them have, they've actually, they got out of prison and they got shipwrecked. So that happened too. And they ended up in Spain 
where there's a very weird political situation and the army has basically taken control of Spain and there's a rebellion and all this stuff is happening and they befriend uh, I think he's the governor of the prison but he's actually one of the rebels and then he introduces them to the king of Ireland the king of Ireland uh, he has his own thing going on he's the son of a much more tyrannical warlike king of Ireland but this is a nice guy and he really uh, doesn't have any evil intentions toward England or anything like that. But he can, yeah. Um, once he, yeah, once he kind of befriends Edric, they, they basically decide to mount a campaign to uh, take England back from this, uh, from the evilest, evil cadre of, and basically incompetent people that's being manipulated by the mummy. And the mummy actually doesn't really have any interest in bettering their schemes. The mummy is more of an avenging kind of like... The mummy kind of represents I to thought me. that the mummy was more like Curious George. He kind <laughs> of, Quite honestly. Like, he wasn't a vengeful... Like, the way I saw him was like... I yeah, go in. I give advice. Kind of... Well, let me explain. I go in. I give advice. Everyone blames me for what happened. But then it turns out okay in the end because I fixed it. Like, I just found he was a Curious George character more than he was yeah, anything he, else. He seems to be more curious about human nature and this weird society that he's woken up after yeah. 4,000 years. His motivations for why he's doing any of this really aren't clear at all. They're uh, not. He, he, he seems to be just giving advice to both sides of this political drama. Yeah, um, I don't think it, he meant anything. Like I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't put that intonation on there when I was reading it. I just felt it was more like to a me, matter of course. To me, he he was all those things that he was all those things, but he represented almost a conscience of the characters. He was the thing looking over their shoulder and taunting them. He was an external force, but he was actually, I think, representing their internal doubts and insecurities and that's why every time they talked to him they always felt bad and he always felt bad in turn because he was making everyone feel like shit but even she even describes it like it's a burning in your soul when you talk to this mummy well that means and he's just right that's all yeah but yeah. he's right and he probably <laughs> knows better than the rest of them because they're all running around you know, like stupid. Right, I and mean, the, the motivations of all the other characters are very hard to ascribe to. A, a lot of the characters do things and, and say things that just kind of don't make any sense. I was going to um, say they're very flat in a yeah, way. Yeah. Like the the motivations, the complexities, they're just not there. And that's why when I read it, I felt like, oh, like a movie in the 30s where it's got <laughs> really quick back right. and forth dialogue. Right. But yeah. it really doesn't have any meat and potatoes to it. It's just broth. Yeah. You know? You, you could tell that she was a young and experienced writer when she wrote yeah. this because uh, oh, yeah. not I a think... lot of uh, the plot is kind of all over the place. Um, the characters aren't really well fleshed out and some of the prose is ridiculous, but there <laughs> are really a lot really... of things to enjoy and it's really ahead of its time in a lot of ways because we've done a lot of you know research and things like that spanning the 19th century on potential titles to cover the, the future and i think this out of all the ones that we're probably going to look at is the most in-depth of crazy future technology 
Uh, oh, yeah. The, the book is set up like The Last Man, and that is a three-volume work of roughly the same length, where book one or volume one more or less establishes the characters and the setting, and the real, quote-unquote, real plot doesn't begin until volume two with the death of the queen and then the rivalry between Elvira and Rosabella for the throne. Uh, but all the future tech in volume one is not only wide uh, as far as the nature of the technologies, but it's incredibly elaborate and creative, um, if, if not totally Definitely. implausible and, and kind of silly sounding from uh, a 21st century perspective on the matter. But it's a lot more creative and speculative than um, a lot of other contemporary science fiction works that really just kind of focus on one angle. This really covers the gamut of how an entire society would be transformed by what she perceived to be future technologies. Yeah. Well, I think and that's everything what is... was nice about it was because unlike what we had with Mary Shelley's works, which were set in the future, but they didn't have any futuristic right. like exactly. flavor, this one at least was like attempting to kind of dream up what it could be, and that like, really made it more sciency to the fiction. And I, th I think that's I liked that. Uh, the one thing I did want to say is to people who don't know, this isn't like the Mummy that the movies were based on. I think that's more the Arthur Conan Doyle one. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I kind of went in not realizing that, and I went, "Oh, the Mummy." Okay. And then I read it, and I was like, "This isn't the Mummy." So, <laughs> just if anyone was curious, this is not the Mummy that you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah, I, w I wasn't really no. sure what to expect when I was going in this because I was reading reviews and summaries you know, beforehand, and I kind of expected it was going to be like another traveler's type story. Like, you know, the mummy wakes up, he walks around, and we get an account of what he sees. But the mummy's really in the background the entire time. Yeah. The majority of the plot is this, like, Sir Walter Scott-type medieval romance, but set in the future uh, of all this yeah, political yeah. intrigue and, and stuff. Um, it really reads more like an Ivanhoe-type novel than it does any science fiction. And uh, Walter Scott's Waverly novels are explicitly mentioned towards the beginning so Webb was definitely familiar with them I, I haven't read any of those but my th my feeling I, I kind of didn't think it was going to be a traveler story but I thought it was going to be worse than it was I didn't think I would enjoy it as much as I did uh, what you were saying about the amateurishness Nate of the, the writing is I think it's true but I think I really think we should give her a bit more credit because oh yeah i'm not saying the entire thing is amateurish i mean it, it does kind of feel like that in places feels, but there are some yeah. really outstanding scenes especially when they're inside the pyramid and resurrecting the mummy itself i thought that was really well oh, done yeah. and but i also i also think that she's a little smarter she's just inexperienced i i think that uh like a lot of things that like what you said don't seem to make sense if you read on a bit they eventually kind of do like it, it's I not just very wanted clear it to be first. over. <laughs> like honestly, I was like I that was where she was missing the point. Let's be a little bit more concise, you know? Yeah. Like I know. kind Maybe. of I condense think, I, it, girl. We don't need to know about what she's wearing for two pages. I mean there was like yeah. more descriptions of outfits than I care to to remember. Like that was like Yeah. But oh, the descriptions of the the fashion were pretty crazy too. That was that was something that it, you know, it was it was an attempt to differentiate. The, the women wore pants sometimes. Yeah. <gasps> <gasps> wow. Well, it was a bit more than that. There was the weird headdresses and the, the yeah. right the controllable yeah. gas uh, flames yeah, that would come gas out. Gas hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and wasn't um, there like LED lights 
Yeah. Too, like, like that had, like, LED, different colors of lights and stuff that you could put on. Yeah, which is kind of interesting, the applications of technology that seem to be inconsistent. So they had the ability to control lighting and gas, but they're using this visual optical semaphore network that doesn't work in the dark because you can't see the flags from 150 feet away. Uh, yeah. you know, she, she didn't kind of think to apply it equally, um, which is, again, you know, not her fault, but it's just interesting looking back 200 years. It is. And, and again, like, it, it's, I mean, obviously her life took a very different course, but I think that her inexperience meant that the things that made sense to her were not always clear to her audience. And I, I do think a lot of things that she does, like, uh, for example... Just, just to give one example of something that doesn't seem to make sense, but that kind of became clear to me by the end. So when these two women are kind of vying to be queens, um, they both get up. This is, this is kind of a fun scene. In my opinion, it was a fun scene. So they both get up there and they're supposed to kind of make a speech for the crowd. And it's all this onlooking crowd of admiring men, basically. Uh, she does it very sexlessly. But, you know, it's, it's kind of hard not to think, okay, this is a little weird. Like, these, these mad women are basically parading this, themselves in front of this horde of men. And yeah, we call that the Miss America pageant. Yeah. <laughs> basically. Like, so, it happens now. <laughs> yeah. So the one, well, the, the one uh, girl, Rosabella, she's the hot-headed, impetuous one. She gets up there, and she's like, yeah, okay, I'll be your queen, but you got to let me do what I want. I'll be my I'll be your queen, but you're not gonna push me around. And they don't like that. The second girl gets up there and she's so overwhelmed and she's so shy and she's so overcome that she faints. And they love her. They think she's so great. <laughs> so all this all this stuff is going down and they uh the um one guy really wants this Rosabella, this this Father Morris guy. He's basically an evil, conniving priest. A lot of gothic novels got to have one of those. And of course, he's I Irish. Like him. Yeah, I liked so him. I thought he was fun. Yeah. So he's this <laughs> evil, conniving priest. He really wants Rosabella to be queen. And at first, that didn't make any sense to me. Uh, at first, I'm like, well, she's the one that you're going to have a really hard time controlling. She's the one that's going to be like a thorn in your side. Why, you know, why don't you just say, oh, well, Elvira is obviously much more pliable and easily manipulated. Like, it didn't make sense to me, given the character. But then when you read on and you see the twist at the end, and you're like, ah, he was her father the entire time. Oh, sorry, guys, spoiler <laughs> for a 200-year-old book. But that's, that's you know, that, that it it's something that does, in fact, make sense when you get down to it. But it's easy to get impatient with her because she's an 18-year-old who has a lot to say. I have I one word, really Sylvia Plath. She <laughs> never made me say you're 16 or 14. The bell jar, I'm sorry, never had this problem. I don't yeah. think the age is really the excuse. I think it's maybe just she wrote a well, book. I'm not saying it's an it excuse. Was just, but, but I mean, like her age, a... but some people who are younger do write really fantastic novels and do write things that are concise and, and eloquent and filled with wisdom. This was just a little more fluffy. That's yeah, all. and Mary Shelley was about the same age when she wrote Frankenstein. Right. Um, and Frankenstein was heavy. Well, Mary Shelley's, a, but everyone's different, right? And yeah, exactly. She um, probably, you know, Mary Shelley probably got started writing a lot earlier. Uh, and who knows, you know, what things, how much, you know, uh, I don't think that Jane Webb 
was exposed to the literary scene. No, she was definitely not part of the same literary circle. I mean, Mary Shelley was hanging out with Byron and Percy Shelley, where as Jane Webb was clearly very well educated, clearly very intelligent, and clearly very well read, I don't think she started writing for any motivation other than financial. Right, um, and and in time, if she had you know kept doing that instead of getting more into other things like gardening and raising domestic pets. Well, she did that because she was a proper Victorian, and her husband was into botany, wasn't he? Like a, yep. a yeah, he was a he major was a, botanist. Yeah, so her husband yeah. was a botanist, and so she did the only thing that she could, which was to draw pictures of his plants and write gardening books. Cause yeah, right. That's what liberated women do. <laughs> pretty much the only uh, books she wrote after uh, the marriage that were... Uh, fiction were morality tales for children. So it still relates to women's domesticity in yeah. a way. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, I, I read somewhere that uh, it was actually well, Mr. Luden there. He contacted her, and the, the thing that actually was brought to his attention was the future she described in the machines and stuff. And he mm-hmm. thought that was really interesting, and that was a talking point between them when they first started corresponding. So it's interesting that he didn't seem maybe wasn't that interested in fostering her uh, literary ambitions. I really don't know. But it is a shame. It is a shame that she didn't write anything else because I think she would have overcome those things. And I'm not saying that they're a factor of her age. They're a factor of her inexperience for sure, though. And, and uh, you know, Mary Shelley had a different sort of life, I think, early on. So, yeah, she was very exposed. I mean, she already lost her first kid by the time she was like seventeen. Yeah. So. Yeah, and she, Jane, bo- both of her parents were authors. Uh, they would both yeah. written several novels by the time she was born. Yeah. Um, and so Jane just, lost her dad. Very, yeah, but Mary Shelley had a lot more depth to her um, character and to her experience oh, yeah. Yeah. and the richness of her life and who she was and how forward-thinking she was really did come through in her text. Um, and as we see, the poor Miss Webb is, is very much a little girl and that's how (laughs) she's very domesticated. Yeah. Whereas Mary Shelley was never domesticated, you know? Yeah. And at times it really does read like fan fiction. Like a lot of the dialogue is clunky. The actions are awkward. Uh, you know, maybe it's something makes sense at the end with a final twist, but a lot of the times you just really have no clear motivations for anything that the characters are doing. Though I think it does... It is enjoyable, given all that. Yeah. Uh, it does have its own certain charm. It, it's a fun read, despite the fact that it is a little on the long side. It's roughly uh, 175,000 words, which translates into, I don't know, 450, 475-ish standard pages. Yeah. The thing in Spain is probably the least good part. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's... one of my favorite parts in the book, beside the uh, pyramids, uh, pyramid scheme, <laughs> pyramid <laughs> scene, uh, is... One of the descriptions of the Spanish Civil War where a city's just been totally destroyed and there's like this gore and carnage everywhere. And I was kind of surprised at how graphic she gets with that yeah. one scene because it's, it's, it's not really something you see in the rest of the novel, even when they're actually resurrecting a corpse and the mummy's yeah, like no, walking I, around like scaring people and stuff. I, I did appreciate that part and she did actually kind of talk about war and how horrible she thought it was. Uh, and there's a lot of... Yeah, it it was cool, but it was I don't know. I kind of I actually found the the drama at home a little bit more interesting, oddly enough, which is kind of weird because I would have thought it would have been the other way around. But uh, 
I just I think that she was good at portraying uh, English society in a rather cynical way. And I think there's a lot more cynicism in here than is at first apparent. Some of it is maybe a little bit misguided. For example, uh, she says that there's universal education now, which great thing, right? Awesome. Uh, it means that English people can speak so many languages, basically every language. So even though uh, somebody can speak ancient Egyptian, they can understand them perfectly. Um, universal education sounds great, but it means that it applies to the underclass, the servant class as well. And what happens as a result of that is that everybody in the servant class basically talks like Data from Star Trek. Yeah, the techno battle is, is really, really hilarious. It is it is something else, and and she the way she basically describes it is that this is a trend among uh, the educated lower classes that they have adopted this very uh, meticulous overdone way of speech that is like you know those episodes of Star Trek TNG when Data is doing something that's emotionally really awkward and weird like trying to domesticate himself and living with a woman and you sort of spend the whole episode like cringing a little bit but kind of enjoying it on a weird level it's kind of like that like it just doesn't it's it's funny and it's uh cringy at the same time and yeah it's basically 1820s techno babble and they portray it as an annoyance like these servants are so overeducated that they're just so annoying every time they talk that it's not even <laughs> worth them being educated <laughs> yeah, pretty I much. I think that's how lots of men felt about women when they started <laughs> yeah. going to school, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, you're so annoying because you have those 10-cent words yeah. you throw yeah. around like you mean them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know that that I, I think Jane, with Jane, it's definitely a class thing because she's very cynical about this uh, queeny, election-y shit. She's very cynical about that. She knows full well that what it really is about is these men want to have uh, a ruler that they can easily control. Uh, of course, in the end, that's probably going to happen anyway. And because they're in love, I guess it's okay. But she's basically saying, you know, that that uh, this is all this is all kind of a bit nonsensical. And I think that Keops kind of is there to critique that whole thing a little bit as well, because he's basically the wolf set loose among the sheep. And yeah, he gives advice to everybody. He's playing everybody. And he's kind of like reminding everybody of all their misdeeds. And so they quail whenever he's near. And I actually really enjoyed, I enjoyed that. It was over the top, totally over the top. Because yeah, every time the mummy appeared, it was like the evil laugh. And then in my head, I heard the bum, 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 you know, and it's just like, oh, here he is. Ready to deliver some harsh words and then kind of pick the people up again. It was like she described them basically being enslaved by him and uh um it's kind of odd that there's been so many mummy movies but none of them drew from <laughs> even just like yeah. cannibalizing out the you know romantic medieval stuff um Didn't, uh arthur conan doyle write a mummy movie a mummy book though i'm story? pretty sure yeah yeah so i think they may have taken more of that one than they did this one right but i mean you know through all the mummy movies through the years it's just i don't kind of yeah. odd to me that you know some scriptwriter didn't say hmm this is yeah, clearly yeah. out of copyright and in the public domain. I could rip this off just fine. But yeah, uh, it doesn't seem pretty, like any, anybody it doesn't has. Seem like, no, and it would be, like Anne said, you know, it, it would have been a really good, uh, like, 1930s, 40s. Oh, yeah, kinda, absolutely. Like, you could totally picture it. And, yeah, and I, snappy dialogue. In my head, and, you know. Yeah, yeah and, uh, you know, the, 
I'm sorry, but the mummy is the shadow. I, that's I'm sticking to that. It's, it totally fits. I'd like to um, see Mae West deliver some techno babble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, or uh, what's her name? Uh, 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 what's that? That uh, film noir? Um, Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it did. It definitely so had one that thing, one Cary thing. Grant. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Cary right, Grant yeah. and uh, Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It was it was fun, uh, but there was other weird stuff in there too. There was a really awesome courtroom scene in the third volume, where uh, she described um, the everybody basically, but the jury who and the clerks are machines. So the uh, the judge is a machine. The uh, lawyers, the defense attorney, and the uh, the um, prosecution are automata. Wind up and, automatons at that. Yeah, they're wind-up automatons. And the cool thing is, uh, these guys prepare the legal documents, and they feed the legal documents into a slot, and the legal documents get all ground up, and the, the thing speaks. And you can put the document into various holes designating what language they might be speaking. So there's a funny scene. First, the, the uh, prosecution speaks and he makes a really stirring speech but the clerk didn't wind him up far enough so he sort of starts to run down like a gramophone and just kind of grows slow and stops uh but it was a great speech everybody agrees that it's awesome so the defense attorney who happens to be one of these uh, lords <laughs> is uh really excited about this masterful speech that he prepared and he shoves the document in the slot but oh no he got the french slot so <laughs> the thing starts the thing starts speaking in French, and he's so horrified at this. He's like, but what if what if somebody doesn't understand French in this courtroom? And they're like, oh, don't worry. Everybody understands French. Okay, cool. <laughs> but she really just that opportunity to make fun of the French, too, because the French speech breaks out in this, like, elaborate, ridiculous poetry, um, which may not be too far off from the truth, given the next novel that we're going to be examining <laughs> in a couple minutes. I was just about to say, yeah. that's like a really good lead-in to the next one, because I think we've pretty much talked yeah. this one to yeah. death. <laughs> well, The Mummy, it's fun, it's a little long, but I enjoyed reading it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I had a really good time with it, actually. Yeah. I'm, I I gave it a three-star rating on Goodreads, which is probably about, you know, I'm not going to raise it, but I enjoyed it more than that might imply to some people. Uh all the all the negative uh, things or the the things that could be pers you know signs of her inexperience as a writer are definitely there but uh i worked in a library the library for um the blind in toronto for a long time and we produced a bunch of a lot of books a lot of really mainstream uh kind of romance fantasy all the stuff that that people like to read nowadays and i've seen so much worse that's been published in mass market of today so i don't know if i like really it as much as you guys about. you guys seem to like it more than i did i was a little bit like oh would we please get on with it like i i, <laughs> I had that feeling too uh most but. of it like i just i really wanted to get to the parts that i wanted like the good parts you know yeah. i think i could have i would have liked it better had there been more of that fun stuff the dialogue like some of the fun little scenes yeah. and then just took a lot of the politics and the BS out of it. I think yeah. I would have liked it more. Yeah, the techno babble in the weird world is really confined to volume one. And volume two and three, you get all the political intrigue and stuff, which is a little bit fatty and could have been cut down. Apparently. Yeah, I think that's what I would. I, I mean, I thought it was fun to read, but I don't know 
know if I'd be like, hey, you know what book you need to read? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't like, necessarily say that either. Yeah. Uh, with it did Star, take me however, a long it did take me a long time to read it. It took me a long say, time to uh, read it. That, that's you know, with Star, I, however, that is a book that I would recommend. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into Star. This was written a little later uh, than The Mummy. Um, This was written in 1854. Not too much is known about the author, Claude Ishir de Fontenay. He was born of peasant stock, and he died young. He was born in 1819 and died in 1856. He had become a doctor of medicine in Paris in 1845. And in addition to Star, he published his doctoral dissertation, on uh, tuberculosis in 1845, four plays, um, as well as a early text on plastic surgery, which he published under a pseudonym of his initials uh, being CID. Um, And he died young, uh, presumably as a practicing doctor um, and just doing literature as a side thing. So one thing I thought was interesting about this book is that the translated title is star, uh, star sigh of Cassiopeia being in the original French, the word star is the word that's used in the original French text. So it's not the French word for star. It's what we use in English. So, um, kind of an odd translating issue that kind of lends, um, a bit of an oddity to the text. Um, Uh, he describes it. He tries to say something about that. I didn't quite understand what he was saying. He's like, it's pronounced like Earth, and I don't I don't really know what he meant. It actually reminded me of a comedy sketch about uh, a um, guy from Toronto looking for a job in Quebec that I'll share with you guys later. Maybe, <laughs> okay. but, but it was like it's pronounced like this. It's pronounced yeah. like Earth. What? And I I see what he meant, but I don't really understand what he meant at the same time. It's it's kind of weird. <laughs> he almost used the words interchangeably too, because he would say Earth. Right. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. human. Yeah, so star but, is the name of the planet. It's 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 not a star, um, so that does kind of lend some odd uh, issues with the translation and reading it as an English reader. Yeah, I really like this book. I I love the language. I like the descriptiveness, and this one I think so far has felt the most modern. Oh, absolutely. In the tone and in um, the concise but like really punctuated um, prose. Like I I found it really fun to read and it was like um, visual and enjoyable and really quick to get through too. Oh yeah, it's it's very short. It's about 195 pages. And due to the style of the book, a lot of those aren't full pages with text. So I guess to briefly summarize the novel, it's presented as a series of documents found in the Himalayas of an extraterrestrial civilization where the guy basically crash landed on earth and he had all these texts from his uh, multi-star solar system and their civilization so the anonymous narrator who finds these texts translates them all into french um, and then provides a really concise history of the society for roughly the first half of the book and then the second half of the book were treated to more 
uh, what's presented as primary sources from the civilization. So we get two different plays. Uh, we get a historical poem in verse, or a, uh, what, what, what has he described? A historical poem in prose. A prose poem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a, uh, a first-person travelogue, basically, around uh, a couple of the planets describing the cities. And interposed with the uh, pseudo-historical narrative are a series of uh, poetry and uh, other short drama pieces. So in a sense, it's very uh, modernistic in oh, that definitely. way, where it uh, kind of breaks the genre form and uh, really bounces around different styles. It was just so fun, and they had like, um, I was going to say something real quick, I just totally lost it, but, um, oh, I was going to say Cimmerillian-esque, if yeah. that's a word. Yeah. Like it had that uh, token type of they didn't read like a token story but it had that really complete history with like this complete like you could really understand who these people were and he really developed like its own mythos which is really something that we do end up seeing later in science fiction like the mythology that becomes from these stories and i i love that aspect of it and it's a very complicated mythos too because it's not just the entire planet has the same culture and that's it. There's like half a dozen different tribes, different nations that all have different mythological beliefs. They all have yeah. different attitudes towards and society. And some of them have different biology too. Yeah, right, right. So that that's one of the major themes that stuck out um, for me as being uh, really the only thing dating this novel to the mid-19th century um, for everything else being very ahead of its time is you have kind of two species that are on the planet star, the uh, Starians, who are the educated, civilized, you know, basically white people, and then yeah. the <laughs> Raplus, who are, you know, the inferior, uh, you yeah. know, third world, you know, black yeah. people, essentially. And he's very um, blatant about it. He's yes. very blatant about it, but this is the position of the person writing this original text. A absolutely. So this is a product so of the 1850s when... French colonialism was just getting a huge restart after all the chaos of the Napoleonic Wars and the internal revolutions. Uh, France had started to invade Algeria during this mm -hmm. time, so there's really a lot of that African, especially colonialism, in this novel. Um, and the social Darwinism, yeah, is absolutely, really heavy. Abs absolutely. Like these people are portrayed by the entire work. I mean, there's really no dissenting opinion amongst any of the multicultures. Um, no, I mean in that. the in the prose poem, they're described with a bit more uh, tenderness, but it's not you know, and even intelligence. But that's really the only thing. And there's a lot of other parts where it's like, oh, those terrible, weak-minded, weak reptiles, and they're so they're so despicable. But that that seemed to mostly come from one specific point of view, and I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think he did try to differentiate it. And one thing I also thought was interesting was. Yes, there's the Starians and the Replus, but there's also these Nemzats, who are these really long-lived, ancient, wizardly people. And they're almost like the civilization. I don't know. It almost makes me think of, you know, these lost race kind of stories where there was the, the previous civilization that was way more advanced. And there's only a few of them left because some weird catastrophe happened and they became sterile. But they're almost immortal. And they're like... You know, eventually it just, it, he, uh, he actually says, well, actually, they're not immortal because now thousands of years have passed since we first met these Nemzad people and they're actually getting old now. 
but their job seems to be to teach the Starians things. And they seem to have no real interests besides art and science. That that seems to be their only purpose. And so really, the Starians are kind of in the middle, and these Replus are at the bottom, and on the top, there are these Demzeds who are almost like teacher angels or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but when they were saying stuff about the poor Replus, they were like, they're bred for servitude and they like it. Yeah. They love being servants. They're made for it. They wouldn't want it any other way. Like, it was pretty derogatory. Like, it was pretty derogatory. And then when the, the people left, uh, the Starians left, he, he talks about how the Replus basically descended into barbarism. So it's like, without us, you know, they're nothing. They, right. they can't do this they without us. The guided hand of intelligent civilization to show them, to beneficially show them, in fact, the way yeah uh, and, and that, that's the kind of whole attitude presented throughout the novel is these the starians are this benevolent race of colonizers they're they're showing the rest of the solar system you know the proper way to live life um and the we encounter a couple of planets um in the system and yeah. for which are actually uh, satellites of yeah. star itself yeah. which yeah. actually makes sense because they do call it star uh, even though it's not technically a star as we recognize a star, but in previous ages, when people looked up into the sky, they occasionally did refer to planets as stars. It's a very interesting astronomical system, and he tries to portray that in the text of what that would look like for a, a sunset or, or, or something like that. Yeah, there's even a map at the beginning mm -hmm. of the solar the starian system. That's pretty cool. There can't be too many fictional books that predate... Uh, Cassiopeia that have something like that. I don't know if the illustrations were from the original printing, though. I think those were done later. I think those were done from the 1970s printing. Yeah, because yeah, if you uh, look at some of the prints, if you look at some of the prints in there, you're like, that's totally a 1970s drawing. Yeah. Like, that's obviously <laughs> not sense. original. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. But I think that there's, like, that's the stuff that was so great about it, is that it's such a... I love ancient aliens. I love the idea that you know, I'm a Philip K. Dick fanatic. So whenever there's like a story that has, oh, hey, there's this civilization that's really old that may have been here before us, and then now they're gone. Well, it really did like pick up on that and not like really fun sci-fi where like we don't know where the beginning is because it could have already happened. And yeah, we just and don't that... remember. And then like he finds it here, which means there's interstellar travel. And like maybe we're you know, the, whatever it's called, ancient uh, byproducts of these Starians. Who knows? So that was, like, my favorite part about it. I yeah, think. it really sets up a lot of tropes that we'd see through more or less all of modern science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you were saying the world building is similar to the Similarian. Similarian. <laughs> yes, that's it. Uh, <laughs> the people on the planet Lessor reminded me a lot of Tolkien's elves. Yeah, like that was the first thing I thought of when I, I was hearing them described. Uh, additionally, with the oh. interstellar and interplanetary travel, the spaceships they're riding around in sound incredibly modern. I mean, they're pressurized. They need to be mindful of their air. Um, there's issues of takeoff and landing. It's just a lot of things we're going to see coming up in works 100 years later that's yeah. almost already fully formed in this. It reminded me a lot of uh, something that I would I want to talk about in a later episode, maybe, but uh, the works of Olaf Stapleton, where he basically 
describes in a book the entire history of a civilization or even a whole host of different civilizations all encompassing many different uh biological biological slash social makeups and he does it really meticulously and it makes it really interesting uh there's no characters really i mean there's a lot of names but the probably the things that come out most characterfully are the place what do you guys think of the place so yeah the plays were cool um my critiques of jane webb being amateurish also applies to the <laughs> drama here um but it's they're, they're funny funny love triangles and yeah. stuff yeah. <laughs> But I I thought they were pretty amusing, especially the first one where like there's this old guy is trying to hit on this this woman and and like uh, there's uh, this other younger one and it's the three of them kind of they're the the two guys are rivals and at the end she's like oh she she's saying like the only thing that uh, keeps me from sleeping is uh, being amorous but when I'm amorous I never sleep. And <laughs> it's like, it, you know, the, this book, uh, it also struck me as being very French. <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely um, some harsh incel vibes in some of the plays, I thought. <laughs> yeah, it, what I mean by that, like, uh, if you compare the works of the 19th century in uh, France to the works in England, I think that the French, I mean, obviously, like, we could all name plenty of names, like uh, Marquis de Sade and Octave Morbeau and... Uh, uh, what's his name? Count de Lautriamont, and these, these guys that were writing really obscene stuff, and uh, whereas the bulk of English literature was not really going that way yet. Yeah, and, especially in the nineteenth century. Nineteenth right. century English culture is notoriously prudish, and you know, continental <laughs> Europe just gets a lot hornier. Yeah, than that. Uh, and the French never really had those kind of. Now, I'm not saying there's any real obscenity in this book because there isn't. But there's a certain uh, there's free... a free free sexness about it for sure. Yeah, like, yeah. I think that yeah, was actually and... really innovative because they did start to utilize like the sexuality, the reproduction, like oh yeah, that he kind actually of stuff. goes into detail about the. I think they're the. I can't remember if they're what satellite they live on, but they're hermaphrodites, and he goes he describes how they uh, reproduce. And there's, and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. there's. The other ones, they're not hermaphrodites, but she says they can only copulate if they're really, really into each other. Oh, no, it was <laughs> like penguins, <laughs> actually. It was like yeah. penguins because, like, the guy has, like, his force and he has to find a mate that has the same life force. Yes. And that yeah. the men who don't find the woman that has the same, like, internal fires he does yeah, or whatever. They're sad forever. They're sad forever. They're despondent. Yeah. They become homeless because they don't have a mate. So, I, yeah, it's very fascinating. Uh, fragrance heavy. Like, there's lots of depictions or descriptions of smells, which I thought was interesting too. Um, he's really interested in the biology and the world and like the life. Um, and he's a doctor. That makes places. sense. Yeah, exactly. So he really kind of focuses on these small details. Like, you don't really see smells coming up a lot in this kind of early science fiction literature but it's like an kind of obvious thing that if you were on these planets it'd be like the first one of the first things that would hit you yeah so a good segue from there uh well the actually last... i was there was something i wanted to finish from before okay. when you interrupted um which was <laughs> like well you do it all the time so um so it was like this uh 
Oh, never mind. I forgot. Go ahead. What? No, I forgot. I <laughs> swear to God, I forgot. Okay, it'll come back to you. So, no, no, I'll just forget it. Oh, okay. Well, a good segue from that. Um, last Man, the book we did last time, has a plague in it. This one has a plague in it, too. So I rate The Last Man Plague a 4 out of 10. This plague is a 9 out of 10. This is a really nasty plague, and oh, he really yeah. describes it in extreme <laughs> detail. This uh, is a sexy plague. Come on. <laughs> yeah. It's nasty sexy. It so is. it's basically 10 years of intense intestinal pain, constant throbbing, agonizing pain that lasts for 10 years. At the end of that time, your body starts to decay. And as your body is decaying, the pain sensation switches to an unbearable pleasure. <laughs> and that's how it kills you. And this is actually the cause of the Starians really reaching out into space. Because they realize the ones that are left, uh, there's also a cult of murdering uh, Starians. Which is right. like... Yeah, so the cult comes up out of oh, yeah. the, I guess, the horribleness of the plague, and they just decide it's better for everybody on the planet to be murdered. So that's basically what happens. Yeah. Um, th this whole scene and episode of it, I think, was absolutely fantastic. I mean, coming uh -huh. from a cult, you know, horror, video nasty fan, I mean, wow. It was great. This is, like, great and stuff, and, you know... A trashy Italian filmmaker in the 70s could have knocked off this one bit and, and, and had an all-time classic on his Yeah, hands. and there was some, like, poetry. Uh, like, the book verges between prose and poetry all the time, right? But there was some poetry specifically pertaining to the plague years, and it was so misanthropic. And so, like, you know, uh, we're all going to die. Uh, uh, find find the best way to kill yourself, you know? Like, it's really... <laughs> We should come up with a giallo strange. name for this one. The plague <laughs> needs a giallo name for sure. The plague of a thousand pleasures with two arms. Like, yeah. Yeah. that's a good one. And the silver bow that has to be in the title somewhere. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, the red cult. lizard. <laughs> the silver bow and its unleashing of arrows into the eyes of cats. Oh right, it always has to have cats in it. That's right. I forgot. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. We can do better than that. But so that we was need a bottle cool. of J and B for us to do better than that. <laughs> Maybe we J can uh, find a battery in the garage and zap Mario Bava a couple times and see if he yeah. can give us any ideas. I would so be you, ready for that one. Uh, no, no, he would definitely have some ideas. I'm sure. So uh, yeah, and uh, the uh, another thing that I liked um, was I liked I always liked the books that talk about you know, space exploration and, and landing on all these different planets. And of course, we haven't really uh, learned a lot about solar exploration yet in 1854, but the imagination on display is really extraordinary. And of course, he describes a lot of the planets as being capable of supporting life. In fact, yeah. every place they land on, including an asteroid at the end, is all habitable, except for one which has an unbreathable atmosphere. So... Uh, but, oh, but that's what I was actually going to say earlier, now that I remember it. Um, you're right, John. It did come back to me. Um, uh -huh. The completeness and like the extent to which he was able to extrapolate futuristic things was really interesting because we just read the other novel that had like a future. We've read like Mary Shelley's mm -hmm. futures and all these different futures. 
Yeah. This one had the most science in it, and in science that hadn't even been conceptualized. And, and I think that was really fascinating for me. Yeah, uh, and this really comes across in some of the early scenes where he's describing some of the strange biological life on these planets. And yeah. he's doing this for the sheer scientific purpose of it. He's not doing it to exercise a philosophical point. He's not doing it to be funny or witty or something like that. He's simply speculating on exobiology of oh, what yeah. plant and animal life could look like on a different planet that has... And there's some pretty strange stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's really yeah. weird stuff. There's like this furry gas bag thing that flies around. There's like all kinds of crazy plant life. On one of the satellites, there's this like race of like snake lizard people or something like that that have trouble breathing um, atmosphere and being away from their home planet. Yeah, um, that's the planet with the flying, the flying bladders that suck people's souls. That was a really great horror part. That 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 he describes these flying bladder-like things that uh, yeah. attach themselves to people and eat their souls, and they're actually intelligent and sadistic. Yeah, they prey on life force. <laughs> And it's just like the luck of the Starian system that these creatures can't escape their home planet for you know, yeah. scientific reasons. Real estate wreak havoc on everybody else. Absolutely, yeah. That that could have been a, you know, what I what I liked about this. Uh, one thing that I, you know, it, it's similar in Stapleton's uh, Last and First Men and the Star Maker is that he'll describe something in a page, and if you just sort of stop reading for a bit and let your imagination kind of wander, you can kind of create whole new stories based on those ideas so you don't really need you know you don't need all this other stuff to latch onto. and i would argue in some ways star Psy is not really a novel because it doesn't really have any you know any characters or anything and it's all a mishmash of plays and documents and first-hand accounts of travel and and poetry and all this but stuff that's like that framing device that was very modern that's like what was part of it because it did use all yeah. these different devices that we do see carried on like tropes and stuff and archetypes of like different types of literary works oh, yeah. where these types For of sure. things are utilized i mean far into the future and i mean and, like, he really did a great job with it like i, I loved it yeah and what it really reminded me of uh structure wise is ray bradbury's the martian chronicles yeah where it's, it's just kind of a series of vignettes that portray a history of a society yeah, that's a good comparison, and I was also reminded of, of other things from, uh, you know, 100 years after Charlemagne, uh, like like Dune, for instance, with all its uh, intercontextual uh, sections that kind of are part of the world building, because uh, what Frank Herbert does in Dune is he doesn't really, he doesn't stop to describe what things are. He just drops out a whole bunch of names and describes scenes and leaves you to pick up the pieces. But he puts all these things in between the chapters that are like excerpts of songs and poetry and various documents and things like that that exist in that future time. And they really help to add a lot to the work. Uh, Jack Vance does that a lot, too. His books H.P. Lovecraft does that kind of because he's very narrative and he's all about his mythos and world building. I mean... Any kind of world builder as a writer, this guy totally is a world builder. Yeah, and you can really feel the culture come alive, especially through the drama. I mean, the dramas aren't going to go up there with Shakespeare mm -hmm. or Moriere. Uh, no. But, I mean, it really gives you a sense of the world. It really gives you a sense of how the people interacted with animals. It gives you a sense of how people interacted with each other, of how the world shapes their thoughts and their feelings. And 
even small details like that, I just think it's fascinating that he was introducing them so early, and he really seems like an anomaly for this kind of thing, because I can't really think of a single work this early that does this kind of stuff. I mean, we, we talk about how advanced Mary Shelley is, and how odd and out there and forward-thinking Webb is, and even some of the stuff like Bergerac, where they talk about a wide range of technologies and their applications, this really feels like a foreign world that could be lived in. Yeah. And that's it's like a very masterful um, fantasy piece as well as a science fiction um, piece because of that. And I, it was really before its times, and it, it felt like reading something modern. Well, from like the 50s on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it ties into the idea of believability uh, when it comes to science fiction and fantasy. So you could write some crazy off-the-wall shit that just makes no sense and it might not register the same way where as if you're writing something and it feels familiar to what you know, but at the same time it's slightly alien, but in a way that is internally consistent and makes sense with itself. So it feels like a world that actually exists. And I think this novel really, really exemplifies that. Yeah, it does a really good job of that. Um, it does, I mean, there there were a couple of sections that dragged a little bit for me, I won't lie, but in How general... How can you say that about this one and not about the mummy? <laughs> My God, uh, man! The well, mummy I did, dragged! Hey, hey, I, 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 did say that, I did say that the part in Spain was less good than the rest of the oh, <laughs> This didn't drag compared to the mummy. Yeah, the mummy uh, was I, like 300 pages too long. All right. I think I'll tell you specifically what part dragged for me because maybe it wouldn't be the same for somebody else. Like I said, I really liked the space exploration part, but I thought he went on for a little bit too long about um, that guy, Salvelt uh, uh, or something, and, yeah. and his ideas yeah, about intellectual, intellectual slash, um, uh, what was it? I even wrote it down. Being everything is one. I can't find it now. I wrote it down though. It was It was basically the the premise of his intellectual philosophy. Right, uh, and I think this, this, a... this stuff really speaks to uh, French arrogance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is basically a, a love letter to that. You know, we're the and... smartest people in the universe, and we're creating this, well, I guess in the book, it's a literal cult of humanism. Um, right. But I, I think those kind of ideas really start to emerge in France, and you can see yeah. them manifest themselves in a real way with the colonialism stuff. I mean, they really go hand in hand, the philosophical <laughs> arrogance and subjugating an entire race. Sure. Um, it, it's and they, you know, they always say that they mean well, right? When they subjugate another race, right, they just that other race just doesn't know how to do this stuff. And when they're when we're all together, they know that it's important. You yeah. see. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that whole intellectual supremacy like i got the point after you know a couple of paragraphs i don't really think he needed to i don't know i mean i get it I, it didn't really bog me down but it was like okay all right i understand they're basically opting for complete mastery of self and mind and body and all right i get it you know and it just <laughs> it, it went on it went on but that was really the only part and and um i liked that it really the unpredictable structure actually worked in its favor and uh, the fact that he brought in the first-hand account at the end where the tessulian which is one of the satellites there he was uh the tessulian guy was traveling to um uh star in the Aber, which is the ships that they use and he has a really nice description of 
coming down over the city and what life is like in the city and it's coming from an outsider perspective and i really appreciated that so it picked up right up again after that yeah. whole section the uh, city is obviously paris in case you were not wondering <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. well there's no better city that i've been to so there you go yeah yeah my experience with it was uh being trapped in an airport for about 13 hours so <laughs> oh, I, spent best, a few, uh, I spent a few weeks there and i will yeah. say it's probably one of my favorite places yeah to go. I, I i love to experience it properly but yeah, the uh, the last segment of uh, the historical poem in verse of uh, Elia, where it's this yeah. kind of odd, you know, she's an opera theater performer, and then it turns into this weird, like, I don't even know how to describe it, like, <laughs> asteroid love story in the cosmos, yeah. you know, like... <laughs> it's it was the crazy. Star Wars. Yeah. Like, it's a space opera or whatever. Yeah, so it's another. Opera. Yeah, it's another love story. It's very operatic. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it's pretty cool. No, you know, I mean the I, imagery I, is very like you know Tangerine Dream, Neptune Towers, you know, yeah, five yeah, hits yeah. out kind of type deal. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 really psychedelic in a way, especially the end scene of them like you know being romantically tangled on this asteroid, asteroid. out in nowhere all by themselves was, and yeah, it's a perfectly right. nice it's a perfectly nice place to live yeah <laughs> so so one thing that actually i picked up on that i thought was really cool uh, one of the other really modernistic things about this book is that um they're going to all these satellites right and they're there's quite a lot of starians left even after the massacre and they're going to all these satellites which are already inhabited they don't really you know they seem to respect most of the inhabitants up to a point i mean you know they don't they don't talk about them like the way they do the replus but they they overpopulate the places where they go and they cause problems so eventually they have to kind of leave it's it's pretty much suggested that uh, most of these places that are satellites of star are quite a bit smaller and they don't necessarily have room to support an entire new society so it was interesting that he went and he took that angle because that seems pretty forward thinking as well. Uh, you know, like, like they visit all these places and it's like most of them are nice. A couple of the planets are not very nice, like the one with the flying uh, soul stealing guys. <laughs> but uh, most of them are pretty nice. One of them even has like, you know, you go there and you hang out and the, the air actually makes you high. Like, you know, you're, it's the, the breeze makes you high, man. It's yeah. intoxicating. And, you know, they're really nice places to visit. But it's like they can't really stay there. It's not practical for one reason or another. Like they even in the first place they land, uh, Tessel, it's probably the least strange, like maybe most star-like the way they describe it. But even so, he says, oh, but, the, the, you know, it, it's a little more stunted compared to Star. Everything is smaller, and it's not quite like, you know, the people that are there are very set in their ways, and they're, you know, like, it's, they don't, I don't know, it's, it's they're really just visitors, almost, and they keep going, and they keep going outwards, and then at the end, this last uh, scientist traveler who's in love with this opera diva, <laughs> who also happens to be a great poet and artist uh he finally discovers the joy of carnal carnal desires and the joy of carnal desires help him to be a space explorer hey that's very modern too yeah and that's how he so, comes up on earth <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, even though the Starians don't violently conquer the satellites, they're still very much portrayed as being these uh, benevolent colonizers, the exporters of proper civilization. Um, a lot of the people that live on the satellites that are, I guess, uh, eventually emigrate to star the planet. Yeah, and, them, uh, and, and, and like some, some degrees of, of populations um, are different races, but they are depicted as viewing the Starians as kind of superior race, right? Uh, they're people to be envied. Uh, so the people, or the person who writes the uh, travelogue is from uh, Tassel. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that that's one of the uh, satellites, and he's not a Starian, but he's just so awed by Starian culture, Starian civilization, philosophy, and art that you know he he decides to leave his home world for for these these colonizers, um, and I think that's a very typical attitude of what the French were doing in this time. Yeah. Um, so they see the whole thing as being very noble, obviously. Um, that's 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 pretty clear and and you know there's all these places that are uh maybe you know maybe they don't have as much landmass maybe there's weird stuff but they're basically there for the taking and uh the people there you know they're they're good to study and they're good to talk to uh, uh and yeah maybe one day they'll come to our great civilization but by the end uh, hundreds of years have passed, and yeah, people are basically flying all over the solar system in these uh, bears, which are scientists at the end, uh, Abbasur, I think that's his name. He actually revolutionizes this technique that makes them go 10 times faster. Apparently, they're full of electricity, and they, uh, they are now like super ships, and they can, I guess they can go further out into the cosmos after that is the suggestion. I really like his uh, his little tiny epigraph at the end there, where he uh, uh, De Fontenay's that is, where he basically uh, talks about why he's written this. Yeah, he breaks it's, the fourth wall. His note to the reader that says thanks. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed my little romp through the woods. Like he yeah, it's very food. short and to the point. Like uh, uh, I didn't mention, we didn't mention this in talking about the mummy, but Jane Webb wrote this pretty long introduction describing why she wrote the book and it's pretty funny it's not you know it's very skippable <laughs> uh but the the um de fontenay at the end he 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 pretty much just wrote a little note saying i did my best i know it's a little weird i hope you enjoyed it uh his final farewell is uh like he 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 almost says well some people think this should come at the beginning i think it should come at the end he says may these stories drawn from another world have made you forget for a moment the miseries of this one. And that's it. And yeah. it was really sweet and nice. Yeah, and yeah. that's yeah. essentially science fiction and fantasy in a nutshell. You know, it's a form of escapism in some way. And even though it can be commentary on the current world, I think one of the reasons that we're so attracted to these stories is that form of escapism. You know, just getting lost in another world and kind of playing around there and just kind of forgetting the one that we're in for a period of time. Well, when one is built as nicely as this one was, it was easy to get lost in it. Oh, absolutely. So this is definitely uh, this is definitely a precursor to a lot of things, even if even if those things uh, are unconscious. I really don't know if Olaf Stapleton had even heard of. De so let's talk I mean, about that. So this was I don't know why it was so rare, but the 
introduction that was at the beginning of the book that we read uh, yeah. was from the 1960s, initially written by a French scholar. And he said at the time of writing, there was only something like five or six copies of the original French pressing in existence. So he uh, republished it in the 1960s, and then it got picked up and translated uh, in English and presumably a couple other languages. I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, in the 1960s, 1970s somewhere. And there was a recent republication um, from a couple years ago, which uses the same translation. I'm not sure if there's additional critical notes on it. I don't think there are. Um, it didn't seem like there no. was, but I, I could be mistaken. Um, but from what I can tell from the introduction is this work was almost completely unknown until the 1960s or so. Um, it was critically panned at the time. Um, this I guess somewhat science fiction author later on, he was primarily an astronomer. Uh, was it Flammarion? Um, oh, yeah. He heavily panned the book, saying it was total garbage because it was not, like, astronomically correct. You know, he got some of the orbits of the planets wrong or something like that, which is, like, <laughs> a really crazy nitpicky thing to, <laughs> to harp on the book for. Um, yeah, but, but you can see people doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, today. right, exactly. But yeah. Yeah. from what I can tell, it looks like nobody really has read this book until the 1960s when it was kind of rediscovered. So I don't know if it was the chaos that happened in Europe uh, in the early 20th century that led to libraries and things like that being destroyed, burned, and copies of the books uh, not existing, or if the initial printing was very small and not that many people read it initially. Um, De Fontenay died young, so it's not like he had a lot of time to develop a literary no. reputation, especially considering he was primarily a surgeon. And it looks like he was a plastic surgeon, uh, interestingly enough, uh, given the time. Uh, yeah, so apparently he was one of the first uh, to apply these kind of techniques. So, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's apparently so he died a year after writing this book. So, unless somebody was uh, his literary executor or something was there to pick up the pieces... Probably nobody was there to make sure that it was reprinted. And if it didn't, you know, it's not like today where everybody has fan communities and stuff like that. Uh, it just, I guess, it fell into obscurity. Yep. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, saying, uh, De Fontenay was uh, primarily a doctor, uh, plastic surgeon. And presumably he would have been focusing most of his efforts on that trade rather than the literary trade. So I'm not exactly sure how much influence any of his well, literary works yeah. had. I and mean, considering it, it, that he died the year after, right? Yeah, uh, but he wrote four plays um, around the same time uh, in 1854. So he so had some say, stuff out there, and he was clearly a literate guy. So I don't, I don't know why uh, this was so such an obscure work. Uh, yeah, it, I do think that uh, from what I perused of the original french it, it does seem to it, it it certainly i mean the language maybe has a bit more cadence to it than it does in the english translation uh i'm not really 100 percent confidence in french i would not have read this book in the original french because i'm just not that i'm not good enough to really feel like i would get it all no, I've never but done I, any I did, French instruction, but I've done, yeah. uh, you know, Spanish for four years in high school and a year right. in college. And even with that, the similarities of the Romance language, I can tell that the translation 
of the poetry sections in particular of the French and the English, like they don't keep the rhyme scheme necessarily. No. And the, the words are kind of odd for what they choose. So it does read a bit different in French uh, yeah. from, from the small bit that I did read. You know, I, I have no formal instruction of words. But, uh, I mean, I appreciate the work the translator did, but I think it probably reads a little better in French, I would, I would think, I think. But uh, we don't, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if, if he had written more stuff, if he had really put more effort into his literary life, then maybe uh, we could say that this was a major influence, but we can't really say that, even though it seems to be the precursor of so much stuff, uh, not just Olaf Stapleton, but, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and, and many other writers have done things like this that are uh, basically explorations of a culture without... He was a time traveler. He has the intel. He just didn't tell anyone. He didn't tell anyone, yeah. <laughs> that, that's kind of the, the feeling I got, is that he's actually been there, and he's like, well, yeah. here you go. I, I, well, I'm hey, from the I future, mean, I went to go see Star, and I came back, and I'm writing yeah, was, about it. Yeah, it's and he's very humble about journal. it. That's how he learned to do plastic surgery. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, he has, like, you know, I need the air containment tank, I need to, like, everything about it was so modern that it's... um. It's either that or maybe the translation really was nothing more than a vehicle for another writer to pick up and use the yeah. work to make his own. Because maybe the translator actually, being in the 1950s or 60s, was like, here's a translation of some cool shit. Well, but a I translation can translation of a translation. But I can make it better. <laughs> I don't so necessarily maybe... think it's that. Because uh, I, I did compare the original French with the uh, English translation, and it, it does match it structurally. Well, good, because that, that uh, makes me even yeah, happier. No, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Like, the, the poetry is all there. It's just, I guess it it sounds more elegant in French, um, is what I'll say, with my poor understanding of the language uh, only by proxy. But, um, yeah, this just feels very ahead of its time. And another example of if a tree falls in a forest and nobody is around to hear it, you know what I mean? And doing <laughs> this still... kind of research, it really brings up a lot of these examples i mean we were talking last time about the last man and the potential description of ada lovelace her work on mathematical programming for computers was likewise a hundred years before its time but it just wasn't practical at the time so it never got adopted people forgot about it and it went buried until recent scholarship in the 60s and 70s turned it up again and i think this is just another one of those examples where for whatever reason, it fell by the wayside. Because, I mean, it was only 10, 15 years between the publication of this and when Jules Verne's career really took off. And yeah. Jules Verne is, like, the most translated author behind Shakespeare or something like that of all time. So, I mean, you figure yeah. a fellow Frenchman writing kind of in the same genre would draw attention to that just by proxy but it just really seems like that this influence wasn't felt anywhere else yeah and and of course Vern, you know Vern is very important and we'll be talking about him at length but he never really did anything like this he never his stories were very firmly pretty much set in the now of his time just with one little added thing like a very functioning fast-moving submarine or you know uh underworld underworld uh, life and dinosaurs and, and stuff and, and you know he, he basically did that thing that H.G. Wells did later where it's like 
you take the world we know now and you just add one little twist to it that seems weird and different and there's your your basis for a a speculative fiction story and uh, the basis where, for steampunk uh, well, basically that, that where but De Fontenay goes so much further and just basically creates an entire new world. And it's not, you know, I mean, the feelings, what little characterization there is in the plays and stuff, I mean, the feelings are all things you can sort of relate to. But other than that, it's very, you know, it's very alien. But he holds your hand a bit and he takes you on a tour and he shows you all this stuff. Um, the beginning even begins with uh, after after... He talks about how he found them the stuff, the desk, basically, of this Tessulian, uh, sorry, uh, Starian in the Himalayas, and translates it. He starts with an aerial view of star and uh, solar system, and he does it from above, which is, I think, interesting, because, again, it's, it's very modern. It's very, like, imagine you were in a helicopter and you were looking down on these things. This yeah, is what and it would in, be in like. a sense, it's a very modern view of the cosmos. And how the planets formed in a ring disk formation due to gravity, and it's presented in that that fact. You know, the orbits of the various bodies very much resemble the orbits of our own solar system. And yeah. it's, it's clear he was in the astronomical circles at the time because he has a pretty good understanding of how all that functions. Right. Uh, you mentioned Flammarion uh, earlier. He was uh, an actual astronomer who wrote a novel. Uh, I haven't read it uh, i can't remember the name of it now but uh i read reviews of it and people were actually faulting it for the opposite reason that he faulted <laughs> de fontenay basically saying this guy might know astronomy but he doesn't know anything about writing a novel yeah. uh, so hal clement syndrome yeah <laughs> yeah pretty much i guess um you know the, the 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 hard science of the 1850s doesn't necessarily uh interest in the same way, except in a historical perspective. So you got to be careful with that when you're writing a piece of, piece of fiction, right? And uh, I think De Fontenay strikes a really nice balance uh, because, yeah, there's a lot of science, but it's tempered with this idea of society and philosophy and a tour of various cultures and ideas. Definitely a really cool book. Um, recommended yeah I, I think we can all agree that this was uh, one you should read absolutely so does that wrap that up I think so uh, no. does anybody else have any thoughts on the mummy or star sign no uh, no I think I think I pretty much covered most of what I wanted to say about uh, both those books and it's, it's interesting there are little things that you can compare to uh, the last man and Frankenstein and, uh, and earlier on the moon journeys and all the other stuff that we covered. And, uh, we kind of pointed out some of those, uh, I, you know, interestingly, this book and the mummy both had, uh, pretty detailed descriptions of, uh, a basically, basically a calamity in the air where all these airships slash spaceships kind of got collided and tangled together. And there was a big, disaster uh in star Sci, they managed to avert it more quickly probably because the starians always kind of know basically what they're doing unlike the characters in the mummy which are kind of incompetent <laughs> which is part of the humor of the, the yeah. book but but uh <laughs> yeah so why don't we uh why don't yeah, we briefly 
I, th- I was like, I think we're done because we keep re- uh, things keep getting repeated. Yeah, and that's when that's when you're like, well, I think we've covered it all. Yep. Next time on Chrononauts, we'll be looking at uh, a bunch of short stories. So this time we looked at two novels. Um, the next episode we're going to be covering ten short stories, roughly post Shelley pre Verne. The works we're going to be looking at is E.T.A. Hoffman's Sandman, uh, Honor de Balzac's Gambara. Nathaniel Hawthorne's Rappuccini's Daughter and Dr. Heidegger's Experiment. We'll also be looking at Dmitry Sigov's Journey to the Sun and the Planet Mercury and all the visible and invisible worlds, as well as his The Talk of Moscow Citizens about the Comet of 1832. We'll be looking at Semyon Yotskov's A Trip to the Moon and a Wonderful Machine with a description of the countries there, customs, and various rarities. Uh, we'll be reading Vladimir Fedorovich Odievsky's Petersburg Letters, Fitzjames O'Brien's The Diamond Lens, and J.D. Welpley's The Adams of Chladni. Uh, we're presenting a Chrononauts exclusives for three of the Russian stories, the Sikovs and yes. Yotskovs. Uh, I've translated them for the first time into English, so you can read them with us on our Blogspot page, which is chrononautspodcast.blogspot.com. Additionally, you can follow us on Facebook uh, under Chrononauts Podcast. Uh, Goodreads, the same. And you can follow us on Twitter at Chrononauts SF. Uh, so that's all we have for this time. Tune in next time for some short stories. And we'll see you then. Good night. <laughs>